of true delight in my unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Continuing on the story of Samson, we saw the what's basically a birth narrative in chapter 13 uh, of Samson, which amounts really to a call narrative. That is that uh, it's, it's about his call to be this separated man and this deliverer for Israel. And right before we get to chapter 14, we have these words in verses 24 and 25. The woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael, and the next thing you read is that he went down to Timnah. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of hard to see the connection between the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him and then what he did. But we're to see that connection. And it'll explain, God, uh, I think in his word, he will explain some of what he's doing. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Apparently, he'd separated himself from them and was wandering in the vineyards at that point. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold... There was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if 
If you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Kids, do y'all get that? What he means? Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I've not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. I wouldn't use that if I were you. uh, (laughs) Just telling you. Just telling you. Don't use that riddle ever. Well, that's what God said. You're right. Yeah. This is actually the same word uh, as Eglon. Uh, who, you know, was stabbed and the, the sword was swallowed up in his fat. And his name means uh, the same as heifer. <clears throat> this is not a good thing to say. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him again, and he went down to Eshkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. That's the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Give us understanding by your Spirit of what you intend in this passage. Lord, how we're to see your working, your glory expressed here. And Lord, how we are to believe you, to trust you. And to have confidence in your salvation for your people. Lord, help us to grow in your grace. For we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, Romans 8.28 is arguably uh, one of the most familiar uh, verses. All things work together for good. We kind of use a shorthand of that. But most often it's extracted from its rich context, just kind of hacked out of there and just used as a little mantra. All things work together, all things work together. But uh, actually, uh, its context is so rich because it is in the context of what, what describes God's plan before time for his people that would carry all the way through time to the end of time. And in that context of God having this everlasting plan that he's going, he, he, he plans it before time and he carries it out all the way to the end of time, in that context he can say, so all things will work together for good. His end point is conforming his people to the likeness of Christ and everything is going to work together to that end. It's a rich context. And that part of the context also is if he didn't spare his own son... He'll freely give us all things. There's the all things again. 
So all things work together for good. And part of the reason is he's given his son. He's not spared his son. So he's going to give us all things. All things will work together and everything will be given to us. This is the context of that Romans 8.28. And I think Romans 8.28 is not just a side issue in the Christian life. It's really, in a sense, the main takeaway from what Christ has done for us. It really is. It forms that in, in Romans 8, this whole argument of how God saved his people. It's the final argument, the final declaration of the glory of everything that, therefore, everything's going to work together for good. This is like, this is how we're going to live now. This is how we're going to interpret everything that happens to us. This is how we're going to look at what's going on around us, what happens to others, what's happening in the world, that he is doing his people good and he is bringing this all to this grand conclusion. How do we know this? Because he gave his son. That's how we know it. It changes everything. Changes our whole view of every day of our life, every circumstance. Yes, all things work together for good, right? And in the Old Testament, the New New Covenant promise is more maybe boisterous in this regard because God says, I will rejoice over you to do you good. That's the OT version of Romans 8, 28. I will be exhilarated always to constantly do you good. Yes, that is rich and wonderful. How do I know that? He gave his son. He planned it before the world and he's going to bring it to pass. These, this is what he does for his people. And so he's always rejoicing over us to do us good. No matter how bleak things get, no matter how shocked and numb we may be over some tragic loss. And the interesting thing about those two verses, it's all things. Both passages say all things will work together. He'll give you all things. All. All. Well, this passage will help us to understand that all (laughs) because it really doesn't seem like God could be working in this passage. It just doesn't with all the crazy things that Samson does. One thing after another after another. And they're pretty bizarre things, right? As you see it, all these wild things occurring and yet God is accomplishing his purpose. God is working out what he wants to do to save his people. And so our title then, God is carrying out his good plans for you always, always. For his people throughout history and throughout the world, that includes Fort Worth Presbyterian Church, and that includes every one of you who believes in Jesus Christ. So let's uh, get into our text some. Uh, All these names of the different people that Israel is fighting, it's kind of hard to keep up with, right? Right? We've had the the Canaanites up to now in Judges. We've had the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Amalekites, the Midianites, the Stalagmites and Stalactites and Meteorites and Trilobites, the Underbites and Overrites, the Crystallites and the Cellulites, all of these these different people. How many Cellulites? No, no, stop talking. But in chapter 10, the final two peoples are laid out for us, and it's the Ammonites and the Philistines, okay? And 
it's really a kind of outline of what's coming because the Ammonites are the enemy of Jephthah, who we just dealt with, and then the Philistines are the enemy of, uh, of Samson and the, the people of Israel. So in chapter 10, it gives us this little outline of verses 6 and 7 of what's to come. First, we're going to do the Ammonites with Jephthah. Then we're going to go to the Philistines with Samson. And now we're here with the Philistines. But also, it's important to see the emphasis on the Philistines because this is not, this is not uh, chronological. It's not that they were the last peoples to deal with necessarily. But they're put here on purpose as to underscore their importance, uh, to underscore the importance of the Philistines. Also, you have so many things about Samson's life that are underscored. There's no birth narrative of any other deliverer except Samson. And there's no death narrative of any of the deliverers except Samson. Big underscore, yellow highlight, Samson, Samson, Philistines. And as well, the tie-in with the Philistines and what comes later is very plain. Uh, Saul and David have to do with the Philistines. And that's part of why the narrator says of Samson, he will begin, or what God says of Samson in chapter 13, he will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And it's very likely that he has in mind then that this will be completed by Saul and then David. Saul, not so much. David, for sure. But there again, Samson and Saul are very much alike in the way that, for instance, this phrase about the spirit rushing upon Samson is only said almost exclusively of Saul. So it brings them closely together. Uh, They both commit suicide in the end in relationship to the uh, Philistines. And there are other things that are uh, alike them that, that make them alike. So you are reading issues of Samson, and they anticipate what's going to happen with Saul and David, and only with David is their final uh, end of the Philistines. So there is this uh, important underscoring of what God is going to do to deliver Israel from her enemies. And it's interesting that after the Samson saga, you have these terrible last chapters in Judges where it's just bleak and dark just to intensify the need for a deliverer, the need for a true king, the need for God especially as Savior uh, over this wayward people. And Samson introduces those chapters that say Israel did what was right in their own eyes because you see in this chapter what? He did what was right in his own eye. This woman pleased him twice. It said this was right in his eyes. This was right in his eyes. It's the same thing it said later of Israel. They did what was right in their eyes because there was no king. There was no leader. Uh, There was no spiritual head for Israel. So we have in uh, Samson this final example of, in many ways, the failings of Israel. And yet in the midst of it, there's this salvation that God brings about. We saw this last week, didn't we? That there was not even a crying out on the part of Israel to be delivered from the Philistines. And yet, next verse, God appears, starts to bring about the birth of this Savior. 
So God, again, we just get the feel of this amazing commitment to a people that by and large despise him, and he continues to love them. He continues to be committed to them. And I want to just say at the outset, this is such good news for you and me because the reason he's so committed to them, the reason he was going to preserve a people is because he was going to bring the Messiah through those people because he was going to save you. That's really good news. That's really encouraging. Everything you see him do in mercy here, it's because he has mercy on you because he is thinking of you by name. No, like... I know that that Israel has turned away from me and they're not even crying out uh, to me, but they're the Masons and I'm going to save them. I'm not talking about the Masons. I'm talking about the specific Masons. (laughs) Uh, They're the Smiths and I'm going to save them. They're the McCartys. I'm going to save them. They're the Steeds. I'm going to save them. And so I must act on behalf of my people to bring about Messiah to bring about the salvation of my people throughout world, the world and the, throughout history. So, wonderful uh, to see God's purpose working itself out here. So, three things then we'll look at uh, briefly. You always like that word, if I hold true to it. Um, God's purpose, God's promise, and then God's performance. God's purpose, God's promise, and God's performance. Um, In the face of everything that's wrong here in chapter 14, uh, those first few verses, and there is a lot wrong, right? If you read the the original in verse 2, it basically says this, Woman I saw of the daughters of the listings at Timnah. The word woman is the first thing, you know. You almost get the idea as they're saying, but, but, Samson, why wouldn't you do, you know, seek one of the girls out of your own relatives? Woman I saw at Timnah. But, but if one of us, you know, somebody from it, woman I saw, you know, it's like one thing was on his mind. It's that beautiful woman he saw. And he couldn't see anything else but her. Uh, so his passion is uh, taking over for sure. And that's all that's governing him, it seems here. And he even says, here's the excuse. She is right in my eyes. So his, uh, but, but in the light of that, in face of that, verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he, the Lord, though some in the past have thought that would refer to Samson, I, I agree with the majority that no, it refers to the Lord, uh, that he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now, the problem is that Israel is comfortable with their enslavement. We saw that they're not even crying out against their enslavement, their misery. Uh, Perhaps their despair is so great that they will not even look to God or will not even turn to Him and cry out to Him. But whatever the case is, they don't want to rock the boat and bring down Philistine wrath. We'll see this later in chapter 15 where they're trying to pacify Samson and say, look, just don't cause any trouble with the Philistines. We don't need any trouble. So they're totally conditioned by despair. And much like in the uh, the movie Braveheart, the Scots are, are pictured there as in despair. And, and if the two armies would show up, it would just be a, a, a way to talk them down and say, we'll give you a few things, you nobles, and, and walk away, and that's it. And you, you remain subjugated to us. You remain our servants, basically, under England's rule. 
And you remember in the movie, uh, they all come together. William Wallace is painted up blue, and uh, he comes to his friends and says, What are you going to do? He says, I'm about to pick a fight, right? He's about to pick a fight, and he does pick a fight, and they happen to win that particular fight in the movie. Well, this is God, verse 4, saying, I'm going to pick a fight with the Philistines. I'm going to pick a fight with them, and I'm going to use Samson to do it. He's my man. And so everything from that point on, as weird as it may look, we realize, wait, this is God's plan working itself out. Like the appearance of the lion in the, in the vineyard. You, you have to assume this came from God. God brings this lion on the scene. And then the spirit rushes upon him, unlike the statement up, statements up to this point with other deliverers of how the spirit was on them or the spirit uh, uh, held them. It rushed upon him. And this is the, the terminology used each time with Samson. And so, like, you take almost like tear a chicken apart, you know. Uh, I have wrung a chicken's neck before, but I've not just pulled it apart. Um, but apparently, you know, some, like a little quail or something, you just pull its legs apart. Well, that's what Samson did with this lion. Incredible power that came upon him. And, you know, people were, they didn't necessarily look at him and say, oh, yeah, I can see how strong you'd be. It just, it didn't even, it couldn't even explain itself from the way he looked. Just this power came from God. And so then later when the uh, honey, the bees and the honey are there, you, you expect Flies and you know maggots. That's what you expect in a carcass. And so, it, the, the indication: behold, there was honey. This was a surprise to him. You wouldn't expect this. How did this happen? Again, this seems to be a boarding, or perhaps it is the miraculous. God brings the lion. God brings the honey. He's got specific things he's going to do. So, the the riddle is set up. We know the results of the riddle as they found out the answer from his wife, uh, wife-to-be, but, but already contracted to be his wife. And the interesting thing is what was supposed to end up as a marriage between these two peoples and possibly to bring either, you know, perhaps even better relationship between the two people ended up in what? It ended up in war, right? So, Samson may have had his plans or maybe his parents had some hopes for what this union would look like, perhaps the Philistines. We don't know. But we know what God's plan was. He was picking a fight with the Philistines. That's what he was doing. And that's what happened. Okay, That's what happened through the lion, the honey, the riddle. And and the end of it was that God picked a fight with the Philistines. So we're uh, reminded here of this amazing thing that his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. And again and again in Scripture, we have passages that talk about what we think and what God is doing, right? Like a little verse that I wrote a children's song to a long time ago. Uh, what was the mind of man plans his way but the Lord directs his steps. We sung that on Sunday night. The mind of man plans his way. But the Lord directs his steps. Okay? Uh, another, uh, we may make our plans, but God has the last word. Has the last word. The last word. Last word. Word. That's another song we did. Okay? Um, 
making the point of their last word, right? Um, Psalm 33 says, verse 10, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Or Psalm uh, Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And finally, in Isaiah 14 of the Old Testament, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, the, the, verses 26 and 27. This is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. Okay, This concerns everything, all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? And as Paul says in Ephesians 1, we are predestined to receive his inheritance from this one who works everything after the counsel of his own will. Everything. Everything. Now, I want to wed that with what we said earlier about Romans 8.28, Romans 8.32, that, that all things work together for good. This means that in the whole of the earth, amongst all the peoples of the earth where God's people are, He is working out His purpose to save His people, for one. And, and, and that will not be turned away because his purpose trumps every other purpose of every king, every ruler, every group of people, any individual. God's purpose trumps what they want to do. And so God will gather in all of his sheep. He will. And you can be a part of that or you cannot be a part of that, but he's going to gather them. What you do matters. But God will gather them. And then, of course, what God is doing in your own life, in our life as a body, can have this mark. Many times, difficult things happen to a congregation. But we could say, they didn't know that it was from the Lord. Even though it was something bad. Both in Acts 2 and Acts 4, it's rehearsed the death of Christ And it's spoken of in these terms, they gathered together to do what God had planned. Now, did that make what they did right? Obviously not. This is the greatest evil ever done on earth. The greatest evil was the crucifixion of Christ. Horrible lies, horrible injustice. What the Pharisees did, what Pilate did, everything, what the crowd did, just evil heaped upon evil upon evil upon evil. They did not know that it was from the Lord. All of that was from the Lord. And he was not just doing a little something good for the world. He was doing something amazingly good for the whole world. Even though the world, and particularly his own, did not know him or care about him and rejected him. In the midst of that rejection, and even because and by means of that rejection, God brings about his great act of love for his people. That's the ultimate. That's the ultimate. And you always argue from that and say God did that no matter how evil or bad this thing that was done to me, no matter how unjust, no matter how I was treated. God, I didn't know it was from the Lord. 
It was from the Lord. And he has his purpose, even though every person involved with it had a bad purpose for me. He has a good purpose. And whose purpose wins out for those who trust him? You know whose purpose wins out. God's purpose wins out. Doesn't mean it's automatic. It doesn't mean it's not traumatic. Doesn't mean, as I've used the terms, that you're not shocked and numb at times with what happens to you. But it does mean as we continue to look to this God who gave his son for us, to this God who purposed before all time that he will conform us to the image of Christ and make us more and more people of love, he will draw us more and more into fellowship with him then we'll see everything as promoting that purpose, promoting that purpose, promoting that purpose. Even in the midst of a lion and bees and a riddle, God accomplished what he was intended. And this was just the beginning then, all of these events, because they kept escalating in chapter 15, and finally the great destruction at the end of 16 of the Philistine leaders, which then ultimately led to their final destruction under David. And we're to think that this was God's ultimate purpose. He's going to bring about the defeat of the Philistines. And this is the beginning of that beginning, you might say. Well, uh, as... I said the first would be his purpose, and then there's God's promise, and his promise is embedded in this event of the carcass of the lion and the bees. And it's a little difficult to get at, but uh, I think it's here, and I follow many commentators who point to this. The, The fact that the lion even came upon him, and the fact that the carcass had somehow dried out and made itself uh, a place where bees would uh, form a a colony is remarkable. And what's also interesting is that the description of his, the spirit rushing upon him and tearing the lion is so much like what happens in 15 when the spirit rushes upon him and he breaks off the ropes and he kills the Philistines. In fact, time and again, people have pointed out to the parallel process here so that the one is seen as a preview of the other or as a symbol of the other this taking this destroying of the lion is a symbol of his then destroying the philistines and many times lions are used as an indicator of nations and in fact this word carcass that's used here is used uh, almost exclusively to describe the downfall the ruin of a nation that opposed God, okay? So there's a specific reference here to the downfall, representing the downfall of of this nation. Also interesting is that the word swarm of bees is not the normal word you'd use for swarm. It's the word that's been used 120 times up to this point in Judges to indicate the congregation of Israel. So one's led to think he's talking about Something to do with the congregation, you know, of here, uh, because that's the whole context up till now. Four times later in Judges, the words are going to be used about the congregation of Israel. And so the picture is then the nation, the in, inhospitable place 
uh, of Canaan where you would not expect God to be able to bring forth a congregation that bears fruit, the honey representing the milk and honey uh, of God's blessing in, uh, in Israel or in Canaan. Uh, here's a picture of that, that he will slay the nation He will slay the Canaanites. He will slay all opposing nations ultimately. And he will bring, he will bring about in his congregation fruitfulness where you just wouldn't expect it. And so this uh, speaks to what he's going to do for uh, not only Samson, but you see anyone reading this later, if you're in the, the day of David and wanting to see the deliverance of, uh, Israel against the Philistines, you look to this thing and see it in, in here, the promise uh, for God's people. Uh, uh, Dr. Schwab, who's a, a professor at Westminster, writes a commentary on uh, this passage, um, uh, on uh, Judges. And he talks a lot about this, of how this sets really the tone of the whole of Scripture in a way. It's a picture of what God will ultimately do in dispossessing the nations themselves And in the meantime, giving us fruitfulness in the midst of nations. Giving us a fruitfulness where you couldn't expect it. There's no way that we could bear fruit. There's no way that we could spread out and have an influence and be light and water to the surrounding uh, nations. And yet, this is what God gives His people to do so that we can manifest uh, the goodness of God in our circumstance among the nations. But ultimately, it's a terrible statement of what will come in God's final deliverance as Jesus himself brings about the downfall of the nations and creates the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell in fruitfulness forever. Uh, so there's, there's God's purpose worked out, but in the meantime, he gives this symbol of what Samson is going to do and in a larger sense what God will do again and again in history and what God will ultimately do uh, with Jesus Christ himself. And so uh, this kind of thing points us to you know, the, the, the wonderful uh, overall structure of, of history itself as God brings about this richness for his people in that final day. And we are, uh, in the meantime, in the midst of our struggle with suffering to bring these two things together, the purpose and promise of God, uh, that we are going to be made more like him. And, well, first of all, that we're going to be brought into closer fellowship and intimacy with him. We're going to be made like him in his beauty and dignity and glory. And then we will manifest him, uh, reflect him in this world. And so there's communion, there's beauty, and there's the light and refreshment and shelter and comfort and salvation that we manifest to the world. What a, what a purpose for you to be the people that God is going to use in that way. What, what an amazing thing that God will put you in circumstances where there's no way that you could produce fruit. It seems like, but you will. You know? There's no way that sweetness could come forth, but it will. Where nobody could expect it, but it's going to happen because this is God's purpose for your life. And this is his promise for you to draw you so that you'll know him more and more, so that you will be like him more and more, so that you will manifest him more and more in this world. 
And then finally, there's this, uh, just to touch on, God's performance. And I, in this, I'm just saying that in the end, there's this beginning of the, the conflict, war, where he goes down to Ashkelon and strikes down these 30 men. Now, he had been dealt with pretty badly. They had cheated him. The, the word uh, plowing with his heifer has sexual overtones. It shows that she basically adulterated herself by turning against her husband. Uh, they uh, did an evil thing against him. They didn't really get his, his uh, riddle. And so all of this is brought about, and he says later, I just brought vengeance upon them. I did, I did to them what they did to me. And however you take it, whatever his motives and whatever good or bad is involved in what he did. For instance, some would say that Samson was wrong in touching this carcass because uh, as a Nazarite, he's not supposed to touch dead things. And there's a lot of talk about how he compromised himself here. But several point out that it seems like this doesn't even concern God in this passage. Because the only thing that seems important with, with Samson is his hair. And that really did make a difference when his hair was cut. But right here, when he involves himself with the dead lion, if he was truly a Nazarite of, of number six, he should go to the priest and get cleansing. And uh, it, there should be a 10-day wait. You'd expect that his powers would go away just like they did with his hair. But nothing is mentioned. This doesn't seem to be a big thing with with God in this passage. And perhaps his is a bit different kind of Nazarite view, uh, vow. And in fact, in the statement in chapter 13, all that is emphasized about Samson is his hair. So that seems to be everything constituted and focused in his hair. So I'm just saying that in, you, you may have, you may think at some points that Samson was worse person or not so bad of a person. Whatever is the case, nonetheless, what God ended up doing was making war happen. The beginning of the downfall of Philistia. Okay? That's what God did. And I, I used the word performance because I needed another word that starts with P. Um, <clears throat> but I also kept it in spite of the fact that I didn't exactly like the word. But I liked the word after I thought about it because... Uh, it has the idea that every time God plans and sets something up, He is going to do it. He is going to do it. He's going to perform, okay? That's the whole point. It's not just words. It's not just a plan. It's not just something ethereal. It's something that's going to happen specifically in the lives of His people. He's going to accomplish what He, he plans to do. And it's going to be carried out to the full, to the last dot, jot and tittle, to the last dotting of the I and crossing of the T. God is going to accomplish what he sets out to, to do. So all the more, as we think about his purpose and we think about his promise, we can rest that he will not fail to bring it about in reality. He is not playing around here. He's not just talking in uh, make-believe. God will do what he says he will do. And this killing of 30 men, as Ralph Davis says, this is pretty brutal. And he said, uh, Dr. Davis says, 
yeah, it is brutal, but you just better live with it. That's kind of how he put it. And, and I want to remind you what this always points to is the final judgment of God, of, of God upon the wicked. All of these events preview God's judgment of the wicked. And that's a word for all of us to bear in mind. If this is brutal, what do you think about the description in Revelation chapter 14, verse 20? Now, this is metaphorical, but if you want to set a metaphor before people, how about this one? It says, the destruction outside the city, the evil city that represents the city of man. He said, there was a wine press. You know what you normally do in a wine press. You know, you press on the grapes and out flows grape juice out of the wine press. It says, so there's a wine press outside the city. But there's not wine coming out. There's blood. That's the picture. The wine press of God's wrath. Well, how much blood? Well, it's blood up to the horse's rein. Oh, that's a lot of blood. Yeah, but one more thing. It's blood that's from here to almost Oklahoma City. That's how much blood. That's the metaphor to try to enable us to catch what it means that God judges his enemies. He ain't kidding. That's performance. He promises judgment, you see. He promises judgment. But you know what it says in 2 Peter? Nobody will believe it. It'll come, but nobody will think it's there. Like in the days of Noah. As they were laughing at Noah, laughing at the prospect of rain, laughing that God would ever do anything. And then judgment came upon them. And it also needs to point us to the reason blood was shed on the cross of Calvary. I look at art online and sometimes there are these little pictures on the right of other art you could see. And there's one that I just, I just, ooh, turned away from. It was a picture of a man who was undergoing some kind of suffering. It was a painting but his whole visage was just covered with blood. It looked like a picture from a horror movie. And I thought of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52 and 53. We turned away from him because we couldn't bear to see him because he didn't even look like a human being anymore. And that's how we would, if we'd seen Jesus, we'd have just turned away because we couldn't stand to look at him because blood was being shed. Why was blood being shed? So that your blood wouldn't be shed so that your blood wouldn't be shed in the last day, so that you would be brought into the eternal home of Jesus, so that you would be sheltered and protected and and loved by your Father forever and ever. That's why Jesus died, to bear that wrath in your place, else you and I would suffer that wrath. Praise God that he would give his Son for us so that we would not be under judgment, but under the blessing of God forever. So if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, you, you may not believe in this whole wrath thing. You may not believe in judgment. But at least we're here to say to you, we, we believe this is the Word of God, and we believe God is telling you what's coming. And we believe that He performs and He fulfills what He says. Why else would he 
cause his own son to suffer to that extent, bearing our sin on the cross, if it weren't to rescue you from that same fate. Trust him. Trust him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that your purposes are carried out for your people, that your promises are glorious throughout Scripture, that what you're going to do to make us fruitful in the midst of darkness, to make us light in darkness, to make us fruitful where there is barrenness, to bring life where there is death. Lord, what a prospect. What a prospect that we are the plants put in the desert, that we are in Christ, the water of life for a dry and and barren world. Not because of what we are, but because we know Christ and can convey Christ and live out Christ and proclaim Christ. Oh, Lord, thank you. You've given us such an honor even to suffer with Christ in order that we might be used to bear fruit for him. And we thank you that your purpose governs everything that happens in our life. Even as your purpose governed what happened in Samson's life, And even in the midst of the terrible decisions he made at points and the erratic, wild things that he did, still your purpose is being served. Thank you, Lord, that when difficult things happen to us, even very specifically our own children do things that make us so sad. May we even then and in other difficult circumstances Remember that this is from the Lord in some way, in some fashion. This is from the Lord. And he will bring about his good and his purpose. Bless us, Lord, to have every confidence in your goodness. For Jesus' sake, amen. Our last hymn is um, found on page... Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away